it's probably the only thing in medicine I've seen in my years that is such a kind of crisp, clean, profound improvement in someone's life where you just fix a problem and it's just, it's just fixed. Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Mansoor Ghani, a fourth-year medical student at Yale School of Medicine. And I'm Sana Herwalt, a fourth-year medical student at Tufts University School of Medicine. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the power of podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the hosts of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Sana and I will discuss prostatic artery embolization, or PAE, with Dr. Raj Ayagari, Assistant Professor of Radiology and Biomedical Imaging at Yale University School of Medicine and Radiology Director for Male Interventional Health. Since he first began offering this procedure in 2013, Dr. Ayagari has performed more prostatic artery embolizations than any other interventional radiologist in the Northeast. I thought we had a really fascinating discussion with Dr. Ayagari, and it really spoke to where the field of IR as a whole is going. I think it especially exemplifies what makes IR so unique, and that is their background first and foremost in diagnostic radiology. PAE can be quite technically challenging, and the arterial anatomy can be very complex. So the proceduralist has to be very confident in their ability to interpret the fluoroscopic images. Absolutely. To hear Dr. Ayagari describe how his core anatomic and radiology knowledge allowed him to dive into a novel treatment modality was very exciting. And I guess it also shows us how, even more broadly, good fundamental training and IR knowledge and techniques can allow you to adapt to the ever-changing scope of IR practice. Yes, and there's a lot of talk of turf wars in IR, but in our discussion with Dr. Aigari about PAE, we have an example of how different practitioners can have a very collaborative relationship and take a truly multidisciplinary approach to treat an illness. I completely agree. This was a very helpful perspective to hear because IR interfaces with so many other medical specialties. I thought it was really informative to hear the specific ways that Dr. Ayagari ensures that he has a collaborative relationship with other medical specialties who treat benign prostatic hyperplasia. Um, And in the end, this type of collaborative environment will likely result in better patient care. Overall, I think Dr. Ayagari really showed us what goes into successfully launching a novel intervention within the field of interventional radiology. Definitely. Uh, Also, an important piece of support for any innovation is research supporting its efficacy. Um, If this episode piques your interest about PAE, we invite you to check out a recent paper published just this past July in the journal Urology, which examines the safety and efficacy of PAE. We'll put a link to this article in the information tab for this episode. With that, we'd like to launch into our interview with Dr. Ayagari about the treatment of benign prosthetic hyperplasia, or BPH, with prosthetic artery embolization, also known as PAE. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Dr. Ayagari. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Ayagari, I know that your path to IR wasn't a conventional one. How did you decide to become an interventional radiologist? Uh, Well, first, when I finished medical school, I decided I wanted to be a urologist. So I went into urology residency and I, about uh, midway into the second year, I decided I liked doing all the minimally invasive stuff, all the cystoscopy and stones and stents. And I didn't like all the big open surgeries. So I decided I was much better suited uh, to be doing minimally invasive procedures. So I decided to 
give up my urology spot and go back in through the match and apply for radiology and interventional radiology to be specific. And I was lucky enough to find a, a program at the time it was called the direct pathway that kind of integrated the residency and the fellowship into one package. So I kind of got it all in one shot and I did that at Brigham and women's hospital and finished in 2011. Interesting that you made that switch. How did you decide to structure your current practice in IR? Well, I, when I started here at Yale uh, as, a, as an attending physician about seven years ago, uh, at first I was doing a lot of interventional oncology work, which is mostly uh, liver work, doing uh, liver tumor chemoembolizations, liver tumor radioembolizations, liver tumor percutaneous ablations. And I still do a lot of that, but I, uh, since I'd been here in medical school and knew a lot of the people in urology, uh, from when I uh, was applying in urology and working in a lab here as a student. Um, and since I still had that kind of background, I kind of tended to gravitate towards urological interventions anyway. And so as the few years went by, uh, you know, the, the procedure prosthetic artery embolization kind of started coming into vogue. And so I sounded like a great idea and I felt like uh, it was something that could definitely really work very well. And I felt like I was kind of uniquely positioned uh, here at Yale, having already had some contacts in urology. And in fact, one of the uh, kind of younger urology attendings who uh, had worked with me in the lab when I was a medical student invited me to give a talk about it down in New Orleans at a meeting. And then uh, I gave a grand rounds uh, lecture to the urologist here at Yale. And literally right after the lecture, a urologist came up to me and said, hey, I've got this guy. I think he'd be a great candidate for this procedure. What do you think? And so I I brought him in and, and did his procedure five years ago, and he's still doing very well. And that was kind of the the seed for this whole this whole project, which we've undertaken over the past five years. Wow! It sounds like, uh, based on your experiences, you have a very unique perspective to offer us um, on prosthetic artery embolization. Uh, so, with that, uh, we'll launch into our discussion of prosthetic artery embolization, which is also called PAE. Um, my understanding is that the purpose of PAE is to block the major arterial supply of the prostate, thereby causing the prostate gland to shrink in size and provide relief for people suffering from benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH. Uh, in some ways, this is an analogy of uterine artery embolization for the treatment of uterine fibroids, uh, which is one of our upcoming episodes, so stay tuned. Um, but to start, start, Dr. Ayagari, could you describe a little bit of the physiology behind BPH and how it commonly affects patients? Sure. So um, BPH is just kind of a, a very common benign process that um, affects probably 50% of men in their 50s and probably 80% of men in their 80s. And it's basically just a, over time, it's overgrowth of benign tissue stimulated by uh, hormonal influences. And in men, it's testosterone. In fact, it's very analogous like you mentioned, to fibroids in women, which is also benign overgrowth of reproductive tissue um, over the years. And so in men, as the, as the tissue, the prostatic adenomatous tissue kind of grows bigger, the gland gets bigger, but um, it, as you, people listening are probably aware, the, the gland sits like a donut around the, the urethra, which is you know, the outlet for urine to pass you know, out of the bladder through the penis and out. And so as the gland gets bigger and bigger, it also gets tighter in the center and pinches off the, the prostatic urethra, much like a blood pressure cuff squeezes your arm. And in doing so, it, it, makes, uh, it create, causes more and more resistance to urinary flow, and so the bladder has to work harder and harder and harder. And uh, over time, that can be very uh, damaging to the bladder. And unfortunately, when the bladder... Uh, gets broken, you can't really fix it. 
And so then um, treatment, you know, when you're talking about um, how to deal with it, you can have, so when people start out with kind of mild to moderate symptoms, usually you want to treat things with medications. And so there are uh, two means of treating it uh, medically. Well, maybe three, but the first is, is with a, an alpha blockade. So um, usually Tamsulosin or Flomax is one where you basically, uh, it, they help to relax the smooth muscle that's in the capsule, the prostate at the neck of the bladder to kind of relax things and, you know, help urine flow better. It's not really treating the underlying uh, problem of the hyperplasia, so to speak, but just kind of, you know, reducing tension in the area. The second um, mode of medically treating things is to kind of, is to use a, like a testosterone blockade. So a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor such as finasteride or, or Proscar. And that medication actually works to um, actually, you know, block the action of testosterone and thereby shrink the, the hyperplasia that has occurred. Um, Oftentimes, the medications are used in combination. They can have lots of side effects, and so for a lot of people, they end up not being um, adequate options, and sometimes they're just not good enough, obviously. Um, sometimes people will get uh, dizziness, postural hypotension with the uh, the Flomax, the, the Tamsulosin. The finasteride will cause, you know, you know, with a testosterone blockade will cause symptoms like sexual dysfunction, low energy, things like that. So lots of times there are um, reasons why people end up stopping the medications, although they are pretty effective and they, uh, they will treat, you know, mild to moderate symptoms pretty effectively. Um, then once you get beyond uh, medical treatment, so we, 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 one way we gauge patients, um, symptoms is we, we use this thing called the International Prostate Symptom Score, the IPSS, and it asks the patient to rate seven different parameters of urination uh, from zero to five, zero being no problem, five being terrible. So you get a total score of zero to 35. And usually the, the, the up to like 12 or so, um, you know, we kind of shy away from procedural therapy. Once patients kind of get into the upper range, that's when it's time to talk about doing some kind of procedural option. Um, and so typically uh, the, the mainstay and the gold standard of procedural therapy for BPH has been the TURP, T-U-R-P, which is transurethral section of the prostate. And what that entails is a urologist taking the patient to the operating room, putting them under general anesthesia, and putting a large rigid metal scope up the, the, the penis, up the urethra, into the prostate. And then they have uh, various different devices which will um, kind of cauterize and cut away the the adenomatous tissue and kind of reopen the channel to get things flowing. There are a couple of variations on that uh, theme. There's also a green light uh, laser or a homium laser, which they use to kind of cauterize and burn away, clear out tissue that way. And there are a couple of other techniques which are um, kind of in the same vein, but may, maybe a little safer and less um, kind of with fewer side effects, but also not as effective. So lots of urologists stick mostly to the TERP and the green light. And so the TERP overall, it's been around, like uh, it's the gold standard, it's been around for about 30 years and has a very long track record. It's very effective and it'll drop uh, that symptom score by 70%, which is kind of the gold standard of therapy. Um, and the green light laser usually will drop the IPSS score about by 60%. And so those are the two main options that have been around and proven. Um, there's another thing called the Eurolift, which has been around just for about maybe five years, uh, very minimally invasive and very safe where urologists will go up and basically put these little tacks on either side, the left and right of the prostate to kind of 
uh, kind of tent open the urethra, pinch back the prostate a bit and kind of get things flowing that way. Um, that uh, does not have a, a long proven track record yet, uh, but it is very safe and, and very uh, effective, at least in the short term. And that'll, I think people say that will drop your symptom score by about 40, maybe 50% uh, at best. So those are the kind of the main options. But a lot of these options are predicated on kind of the, the size of the prostate gland. So glands will be measured in cc's or milliliters or grams, and they're all kind of interchangeable units. Um, and so if a gland is 80 uh, cc's or smaller, uh, usually they will be a candidate for most any transurethral procedure, including the Urolift. Once it goes above 80, the Urolift is not approved for use in, uh, in the U.S., but it is in Europe up to a gland size of 100. But once you're in the 80 to 120 range, that's usually the the range for uh, you know a urologist to do a TERP or a green light or another similar procedure. Once glands get beyond the 120 milliliter volume mark, the the transurethral procedures become a lot more difficult uh, and a lot less um, efficacious, and so. For glands that are larger than 120, the, the procedure options drop off dramatically. And so at this point, um, before the prostate embolization procedure was really, um, you know, kind of perfected, the, um, the main option would be a prostatectomy, which uh, used to be a very big, open, bloody surgery where they would cut you open and then cut a big hole in the bladder and literally scoop out this massive prostate gland with, you know, a very morbid surgery and lots of bleeding risk and just, you know, very invasive overall. These days, there's some urologists that will do, um, do it robotically. So, you know, laparoscopically. Um, I think there are not a whole lot of places in the country that, that have expertise in that. And some urologists now, I think even fewer, feel comfortable doing something called a hole of H-O-L-E-P, which is a holmium laser in nucleation of the prostate where they'll go transurethrally and rather than just using the, the laser to kind of core out the center, they'll actually try and enucleate the whole gland and push the whole core of the gland into the bladder and then like kind of chop it up and pull out the pieces. So those are the procedural options. And um, there are a lot of patients that are just not good candidates for any major procedure. Either they have lots of comorbidities, they're elderly, they have uh, bleeding risks, or maybe they are on you know blood thinning medications that prevent them from getting such procedures, um, or you know maybe the glands are so big that there are no urologists in the area that um, are comfortable doing those you know pretty invasive and also um, uh, you know very technically advanced procedures, like I said, like the whole lip or the robotic prostatectomy. And so a lot of patients uh, prior to prostate embolization were left with no procedure options effectively, and they would either have to just deal or have an indwelling catheter, uh, which is quite miserable, or even have a suprapubic tube, which is a, just a, a tube we insert percutaneously into the bladder um, so to drain it. Uh, so now that PAE is practiced more widely, when do you think a patient with BPH should consider treatment with PAE instead of other treatment options, uh, such as what size range of prostate is amenable for PAE and what percent improvement in IPSS score is expected with PAE? Sure. So there are um, still not very many places in the country doing prostate embolization. And I, if I had to kind of hazard a guess, maybe about a dozen places in the country where uh, there are the procedure has been done in significant volumes where, you know, the practitioners are, you know, skilled and kind of able to do it well and, and safely. Um, but that's rapidly changing, of course, with any new technology. And so um, in terms of who's a candidate for it, there are very few patients 
who are not candidates for it. Um, we can do an embolization on any gland size um, from 50 to 750 milliliters. I've, I've, that's, you know, I've done that full range. Um, sometimes patients will have large median lobes where it's kind of the, the median lobe of the prostate gets very large and kind of grows up into the bladder. Um, and that can make things more difficult for certain kinds of transurethral procedures. Um, but we've had plenty of patients with the large median lobe who've done just as well as those without. Um, really the only major issue is if, if there's, you know, an allergy or some problem with, you know, the medications we would give that where a patient absolutely could not receive them. And those are very rare or, mostly just the renal function issue that we deal with with any kind of um, angiographic procedure. We need to give the patient contrast to visualize the vessels properly and uh, do things safely. And uh, if a patient has underlying renal problems, then the contrast can you know, uh, cause renal failure potentially. So uh, that's really the only reason why I ever hesitate from a technical point of view, to, you know, to do the procedure. Sometimes patients aren't candidates for it because it's not the right thing for them. So you have to also always understand that the the bladder can have its own problems. Uh, people can have overactive bladders. They can have bladders that have been stretched out and no longer function properly. People with diabetes, for example. Um, patients with Parkinson's multiple sclerosis where they have actual like neurologic issues with bladder control. Um, they can also have large prostates just by virtue of being older men. Uh, the two situations coexist commonly. And so it's very important to tease out what the nature of the problem is. Lots of times the symptoms can overlap tremendously and it can be very difficult to figure things out. And so I never really practice in a vacuum. I always make sure patients um, see a urologist and get a full evaluation if they haven't already been referred by a urologist to me for the procedure, um, because we want to make sure we're doing the right thing for the patient. We want to make sure that we all understand that we're treating the prostate and uh, not treating the bladder. And so we can hopefully eliminate the prostate from the equation. But if other issues exist, then you know we, we have to understand that. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes patients have terrible obstruction and they know that they may have bladder issues afterwards, but doing this will help them anyway. Um, but some patients, they come in thinking they have prostate problems and you realize, well, this really sounds more like maybe you have an overactive bladder or maybe you're just drinking too much fluid or maybe you're a diabetic and you're making a lot of urine when you shouldn't be and you need that worked up. So as long as it's definitely you know the right thing to do if the patient has a big prostate, there are very few patients who are not uh, good candidates. So in terms of you know, workup, pre-procedure workup, as long as they have good renal function um, and no prohibitive allergies, uh, we just like to know the size of the gland going into it. We like to know how well they're urinating beforehand. So we'll get a post-void residual, um, just a simple ultrasound measurement. Um, some people uh, like to get uh, what's called a Euroflow study where you actually measure, you quantify the patient's flow rate. And that's really nice to get, but oftentimes practically it's difficult for us to get that the way our clinic is set up um, and the way patients you know, just want to get kind of get things scheduled. Um, we also uh, just make sure there's no, you know, we, if there's any issues with concurrent prostate cancer, we're aware of those. We don't necessarily avoid treating a patient because of prostate cancer, but we like to know what's going on. Um, you know, when we do the procedure. And I always just make sure, you know, that, like I said, the patient's seen a urologist and has had a thorough workup with that person to make sure we're all on the same page. And I always make sure the urologist is involved and engaged with the patient's care so we can kind of do things together. Um, 
And uh, imaging wise, you know, some people will get, it's, I like if there happens to be a, a CT scan or an MRI, some cross-sectional imaging, that's great. I don't feel like it's, it really changes my practice to order like a CT angiogram or something to look at the vessels. I found uh, early on in my experience, I would order imaging and think something was going to be really difficult, but it ended up not being so. And sometimes I would think things are going to be really easy and they were impossible. So I found that getting pre-procedure imaging in the end didn't really change my management. So I uh, just kind of stopped doing it. Um, and that's pretty much it for, um, kind of the pre-procedure workup, except I will mention one other test called the urodynamic study, which we use, um, well, urologists perform that. If, if there's really lots of questions about um, the patient's bladder function and, and, and how well it's going to be able to empty, uh, it's a more invasive, more difficult test to get, and it's something that only some specialized urologists will do. So uh, we'll usually reserve that for kind of the you know, problem-solving cases, but we, we get it so, every so often. And uh, what are some examples of cases where you would opt for the more extensive workup pre-procedurally? Uh, what sort of histories would make you want to take a, a very close look before starting uh, opting down the procedural route? Well, any patient with, um, so an underlying neurological problem, so a Parkinson's patient, a uh, patient with multiple sclerosis, um, patients who have, if there's a, any evidence of leaking or incontinence, so you would expect that uh, if the prostate's big, urination's a problem, they're not going to leak or dribble or, or have accidents, but sometimes they will, uh, you'll, or you'll have patients that have that issue, and so you want to work things up a little bit more in, in that respect. Um, I guess the older the patient is and the bigger the gland is and the longer standing the problem is, the more likely their bladder is not functioning well. Um, about... Uh, I would say 30% of the patients I've seen have indwelling Foley catheters because they are in just complete retention and could not urinate without them. And so there are some patients who are, you know, younger, 65, had issues. They were kind of limping along well enough, but then they say went and had a hernia repair, some general surgery, and their bladder just kind of went to sleep and never woke back up well enough to kind of push against this severe obstruction. And so with those patients who have a recent kind of a recent history of seemingly reasonable bladder function, you know, you can bet that that, you know, they're going to get back to normal, but the, the older 90 something year old patients who've had catheters in for years, you really have to wonder, well, how well is their bladder work anyway? How well is it going to be able to squeeze? We can eliminate the blockage potentially and make things better that way. But if the bladder itself doesn't work, you know, and so those kind of patients are the ones that we'll get, we'll get further work up on. Great. So let's dive into more detail about uh, the procedure itself. Yeah. What is your step-by-step -step technique when performing PAEs and what important decisions or considerations do you need to make during the procedure? Well, it's very probably difficult to capture in words. It's a lot more, you know, obviously to do with imaging. It's at, at it's hard. It's an image guided procedure. Um, we can get either radial arterial access or femoral arterial access. We usually just give the patient mild sedation medication. It's a once you put the arterial access sheath in, which is a six French or five French sheath, there's really no pain with the procedure at all. So some patients really like to see it and watch it and are very fascinated by it. And, and we'll position the screen so they can watch the procedure as we go. Other patients obviously just want to kind of not be aware and we can sedate them a little more heavily. Um, but then once we get in, we basically, um, I try and be, after now having done as many as I have, I, I, I feel comfortable being kind of more efficient and um, doing less kind of initial imaging, but most people will start out um, 
doing a, a pelvic angiogram, I go straight uh, to accessing the internal iliac arteries. I'll typically choose the left side first, um, get into the internal iliac artery, do a good angiogram, map out the arteries. And there's a lot of, uh, an extreme amount of variation in the uh, pelvic arterial anatomy. And the prostatic arteries can be um, difficult to find and can be quite variable. And so there, you know, uh, there's a probably maybe five different um, anatomical patterns that they will follow. And so it's important to know those. And uh, my first several dozen cases, I hadn't yet got to the point where I kind of understood and knew those patterns well. And I spent a lot more time kind of looking and mapping and, 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 and really kind of ruminating over things. But once you really have done many of these, you kind of, those patterns kind of become imprinted in your mind and you can kind of recognize things more quickly. But the main thing to really understand with this is compared to other embolization procedures, there's a much higher um, risk for what we call non-target embolization. And then it's a much higher area to a uh, much higher risk area to get non-target embolization. And for example, when we're in the liver, once we're in the liver, we're pretty much not going to, you know, put our embolic agent anywhere that's not in the liver. Whereas in the pelvis, you can think you're in the prostate, you think you're, that you're in the prostate, but um, there are lots of collaterals that connect to the penis, the bladder, the rectum, even to the legs. And so these beads, once we put them in, they are permanent. And so if they go the wrong way, they can obviously cause disastrous problems in the pelvis. So there's a lot of uh, mapping on mapping out the vessels that goes on, looking for these collaterals, these shunts and things that you really need to be careful for. And so if we see them and we can't kind of steer past them, sometimes we will get into these collaterals and occlude them with coils. It's called protective coiling where you, it's just like kind of putting a cork in the connector between two vessels so that the beads get funneled just to where you want them to go. But once we map everything out, usually with the any one of different uh, kinds of different shaped microcatheters, we will select the prostatic artery or arteries. Sometimes there's more than one. We inject nitroglycerin so we don't get spasm and also so we potentially are able to deposit more embolic agent into the gland and presumably get a better result. Um, I uh, used to do a cone beam CT on each side where it's basically an on the table CT angiogram. And so you get very nice 3D reformatted images and volumetric, um, you know, renderings of the vessels. So you can really confirm where you are. Um, these days I don't find that technically necessary, although for some research purposes or just for good pictures, uh, I still do it fairly often. Um, but that's a good way to confirm that you're in the right spot and not anywhere where you don't want to be. And once you're in the right spot and you're ready to go, you inject the beads. Um, and then you, it's a very slow process because if you get, um, beads that reflux. So the beads are, sorry, one to 300 micron. Uh, usually we use uh, embospheres as the brand. A lot of people use three to 500 micron embospheres. Um, but the beads, if they reflux and go the wrong way, like I said, they can always go to some organ that you don't want to embolize. So we have to do it very slowly and carefully and watch the beads as we pack them in. And then once we're done on one side, we just kind of steer over to the other side and, and repeat the entire process. Then once we're done, we take everything out and uh, we'll usually, if we go through the femoral artery, we'll use a, uh, a little closure device called an angio seal. Typically, uh, if we're in the wrist, we just kind of hold pressure with this little kind of specially designed pressure cuff, put a bandage on, and then the patient goes to recovery, hangs out for two hours, and then goes home. Um, the procedure usually lasts 
on average about two hours. Um, I, I, I do a lot of teaching during the procedures. So probably if I were in private practice, it would be more like hour and a half or, or something or less. Um, when they're really tough, they can be three hours or longer, but on average with fellows and residents, we usually do them in about two hours. Um, and then, like I said, the patient goes home the same day and, uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, sure. Well, I just, uh, going back to the beginning. So how, how do you decide between radial versus femoral access? Oh, um, it's mostly, I guess, user preference. Um, I started out doing femoral and then I switched to doing radial access. And then there were some new kind of microcatheter devices that came out in the market that I wanted to use and they weren't available in lengths long enough to use radial access. So then I switched back to the femoral access and that's where I've just got, you know, I, I, I just tend to be able to be more efficient and, and just kind of more nimble when I, I go from that route. But um, lots of patients prefer the radial access because they, they don't need to lay flat for two hours afterwards. Um, but I, either works very well, and, and depending on who you ask, you know, a lot of people will do them radial, radially. Um, typically, if a patient is taller than six feet, we worry that our, our catheters just simply won't be long enough to go from the wrist all the way down to the prostate. Although, surprisingly, it, it's a much straighter shot than one might imagine. Um, if a patient has any major history of stroke or any kind of carotid vertebral artery problems, we'll you know, stay away from the, the radial axis because you do pass by the left vertebral artery on your way down. Likewise, if a patient has any major groin issues, so scarring from surgeries, major peripheral vascular disease, amputations, things like that, uh, we may tend to uh, shy, or if they're really obese and we just can't get in easily, uh, we'll, we'll tend to prefer the radial axis instead. When you're having trouble getting into those tricky arteries, do you have any favorite wires or catheters or techniques that you use? Mostly just luck. <laughs> uh, there's lots of different, I mean, literally dozens of different catheters and wires, and sometimes we go through them all. So there's nothing really, I mean, there's a, a couple that happen to, just brands that I happen to use frequently, but I don't know if they're particularly special. When you're working with residents or fellows, what are the high yield points that you kind of want to make sure they come away from the procedure with? Um, mostly that you can't just learn how to do a procedure and expect to be able to build a practice doing that. There, uh, I would say probably more than half of, of the, the knowledge one needs to practice this safely and effectively is in the, the clinic setting and understanding how to work patients up properly and to know what to explain to them so that you can get, you know, give them realistic expectations about what they're going to experience afterwards. Um, understanding how to screen out patients that are not the appropriate candidates for it, understanding how to work with the urologist to kind of get these patients worked up properly, understanding your limits uh, in what you can do and how you can help people. And then afterwards, um, there are always lots of phone calls, lots of issues that come up. These are you know, generally older, sicker patients with lots of other issues and some very real medical problems. Also lots of, you know, just more like social anxiety problems. Lots of older patients will have dementia and you have to work around that, um, but they'll have an indwelling catheter and be getting terrible UTIs or they're having severe bleeding from their prostate. So you do the procedure to help them, but then you have to understand that you have to work with them afterwards, and that can be quite a challenge with older patients. So I would say a lot of the, the well, all of that pre and post procedural information, or that that knowledge and that that clinical skill, um, 
is far more important than just the procedure. And so lots of trainees will come through and think they can master the procedure and go out and just start doing it. And that is completely false. I would say also that sometimes the cases go very easily and, and seem very straightforward. Uh, sometimes they're complete, you know, um, nightmares about how complicated they are and, and, and all the problems that, that you can come across. And um, so lots of people think technically, oh, it's just like a much simpler version of, of we talked about earlier, the, the, uh, there's a much simpler version of this procedure basically called uterine fibrodembolization, which is very, very similar when you talk about the overall steps, but far easier, far uh, quicker, um, you know, any, any kind of reasonable interventional radiologist uh, will have had, will have done them and know how to do them well. Um, you can have them have this procedure done pretty much, you know, anywhere in the country. Um, a lot of people just think, oh, it's just like fibroid embolization, but in elderly men. And that is not the case at all. It is a much more technically challenging procedure. So it's also uh, very important to understand uh, what a, you know, what a mess you can get yourself into if you're not really careful and skilled and, 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 you know, understanding what you're doing. So those are the two main things I try and drive home with trainees. So Dr. Ayagari, you mentioned that prostate artery embolization is more technically challenging than uterine fibroid embolization oftentimes. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the technical challenges you see more often with PA? Sure. Um, so these are, you know, generally older men with lots of times, you know, significant atherosclerotic disease just by virtue of being older. And so compared to the hypertrophied uterine arteries you'll see in women with fibroids, which are sometimes those arteries are so big that you can almost close your eyes and just push the catheter and it'll go into the funnel into the correct artery. Whereas with the, uh, when you're doing a, a prostate embolization, the vessels are much smaller. Um, their angles are much more, their origins, I should say, are much more uh, tortuous in their angles. So they can be difficult to get into um, if you can even find them. And I, I remember when I was first starting these cases, I would have, great difficulty even identifying the arteries. And it's it's interesting how I go back and look at cases, you know, five years later, four years later, and I can see, well, there it is. It's obvious. Like, you know, so there's definitely a lot of um, kind of experience that comes with kind of being able to pick them out easily. And then once you think you've got them and think you're in, they can be difficult to kind of advance into. Once you get into them, there's all these collaterals that I was talking about before that you have to really navigate past or through or, and then once you start embolizing, that the the flow dynamics shift oftentimes. So when you don't see dangerous collaterals beforehand, uh, initially, maybe a quarter of the way through the embolization, as you knock out the smaller vessels, now maybe new shunts kind of come up, and so you have to constantly be looking in like four or five different spots on the screen as you put the beads in, and then oftentimes stop and recheck, you know, with new angiograms. So. There's a lot of it's a it's a much more dynamic process rather than just saying okay I'm in the uterine artery I'm ready to go shoot in the beads and then I'll be done or like if you're in a doing a a liver tumor embolization okay I'm in the artery that treats the tumor just jam in the beads till till it's dead um, there's a lot it's a, it's a much more dynamic and shifting kind of de- you know process with prostate embolization and you mentioned you like to go for the left internal iliac first so. I was wanting to ask you about laterality. Uh, why do you go for the left internal iliac first? And do you have a preference for using the left versus right femoral axis or radial axis? Oh, it's just ergonomics. I, right femoral axis is, if you're a right-handed person, uh, 
uh, a practitioner, right-handed access into the patient is usually just easier in the way a lot of rooms are set up. And so once you, if you do right femoral access, just for procedural flow, you know, when you're putting your catheters and your wires, it's typically, if you're going to do both sides, it's typically easier to go up and over to the left first, then pull back into the right. Um, but that's totally just user preference. Um, and, and likewise, between radial and femoral, um, again, it's typically user preference. Uh, and sometimes there are some medical reasons to do one or the other, but um, it's mostly just ergonomics and, and what you think you're fastest at. I see. Um, and you mentioned that some of your patients are able to follow along the procedure um, on the screen as it's going on. What do they think about it? What do they tell you? Oh, that some of them just think, you know, it's the kind of person who's maybe a bit more educated and really interested in technology and, and just kind of medical innovations and they'll love it. They'll, you know, cause you kind of, in the beginning, explain the anatomy a bit, just generally like this is your pelvis, those are your hip bones, this is your bladder, this is your pain. And so they can, kind of know where to look and then they they'll they'll see you mapping everything out they'll see you steering into the you know the the the, the different vessels and and sometimes um when we're not quite sure where we are when you inject the contrast into a, a very kind of small vessel they'll feel the warmth that that you typically get from a contrast injection so if you are it's kind of a, a diagnostic a useful diagnostic thing to do in, in troubleshooting situations but also the the patients will see and be kind of interested. So sometimes you'll be in a, like a rectal artery and you're not quite sure if it's prostate or rectum. So you just inject some dye, you know, just for a second and you ask them where they feel that warmth and they'll tell you, Oh, that was in my rectum or, Oh, that was in my penis. And, and just to, for them to really be able to, to, to walk through with you that mapping process and to know, I think, well, hopefully that you're going to be in the right spot because then they don't feel the warmth anymore when you're in the prostate. Um, but uh, but yeah, generally they they it's it's pretty neat. They 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 like watching it. But there are lots of patients. I, it's a minor a minority of patients. Lots of patients just you know the, the less medically inclined will just wish to you know kind of go to sleep. So we just let them doze off. Um, and I guess that's a good transition into uh, the post procedural care. Uh, could yeah. you describe for us um, what sort of care these patients have? Um, so you mentioned that they're in recovery for about two hours and then usually go home. Yeah. So then we have them just. By virtue of you know the arterial puncture, we have them on. I keep them on bed rest for the rest of the day. Not really strict, but just like being a couch potato at home. Then um, a couple days afterwards of activity restriction in terms of no heavy lifting or sexual activity or exercise or physical therapy, just so they don't strain and cause bleeding at the access site, be it radial or uh, femoral. And then after that, I tell them. Um, I don't impose any further restrictions on them. So, you know, three or four days after they can go back to doing whatever they want. Um, but what it's, a, that's a very different story compared to what they feel like doing. And so there can be a lot of post-procedure inflammation, um, because when you shut down the prostate, as you infarct it, it gets inflamed. And so, uh, the inflammation will refer normally, you know, commonly down to the tip of the penis. Uh, they'll have penile pain. It can uh, uncommonly irritate the rectum and give them kind of rectal urgency. It can commonly also affect the bladder and cause uh, bladder spasm. And so um, these these inflammatory symptoms afterwards can be minimal. And like I had a patient in clinic today who really, actually two patients who described almost nothing afterwards. But sometimes uh, it can be on the other end and be pretty severe. Um, 
lasting for a week or even longer. And so we tell patients, you know, we just try and prepare them. There's going to be, you know, a range. On average, they'll get about three days of kind of these symptoms of, of the, 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 the pain, which we usually treat pretty well with over-the-counter uh, anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen. Um, also, the bladder spasm, sometimes we'll have to urinate every half hour, and that can be pretty tough um, for anyone, you know, making it through the night, um, especially for an older person. And so sometimes, um, you, you know, usually it lasts for about three days on average, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less. But um, commonly, uh, you know, what a 40-year-old or a 30-year-old may be able to handle is a lot more than what an 80-year-old person can handle. So you really have to uh, be able to kind of walk them through it and um, really kind of cater to, you know, their, their needs because they will have more needs than, than younger, healthier patients. Um, but usually, you know, I tell patients, you know, the first week, more or less, expect to be worse than you were. Lots of times, well, not lots of times, but sometimes they'll notice just because of the inflammation, their urine stream is actually temporarily worse because things are a little bit more um, pinched off. Usually I, by the second week, I tell people they're pretty much back to their normal. By the third week, the, you know, the shrinkage really starts coming in. They'll start noticing improvement. And by the end of the fourth week, almost everyone is feeling better. And then the, um, the shrinkage continues to occur usually over about three months. So they just kind of get progressively better. And so uh, in my hands, in my practice, we've found that about seven out of eight patients have a really good result. And when I say that, that means on average about a 70% reduction in the IPSS, the symptom score, which is in line with the TERP. Um, other centers um, may not really have been able to achieve as, you know, good of a response in terms of the symptom score reduction. We're also looking at our numbers in terms of um, improvements in post-void residuals. Those are also uh, looking pretty good, but I have yet to do a real good um, kind of firm statistical analysis on that. Um, and we also look at gland size, how much the gland shrinks. That's not so important because you can have a huge gland, but if you're open in the center, you'll urinate just fine. Whereas if you have a tiny gland, but it's super tight, you'll be miserable. But we get on average about a 30% uh, volume reduction in the gland. And so, um, so we tell people about seven out of eight patients will have a good result. Uh, and on average, that, that, that symptom score reduction will be in line with the TERP and that most patients will achieve that. Um, if not, by the end of the first month, they'll get pretty close to it and then kind of, you know, get a little bit better over the next second, over the second and third month and kind of get to that point. Um, and then, you know, then they ask, well, how long will these results last? And so that's the big question. And, you know, obviously the, like I said, the TERP has been around for about 30 years, the green light for about 20 or more. This procedure has only been around for about five years, uh, much like the Eurolift. So we really don't have good long-term data yet. The, the procedure was approved by the FDA about a year ago. We have good two and three-year data, which are excellent and show a very good sustained response. Um, we are starting to get five-year data now, which are also looking pretty good. But, you know, um, like any new procedure, it takes you know, several years to kind of accumulate enough data to be able to tell patients, you know, what to expect longer than two or three years out. But, you know, some patients will come in, they're 80 years old, they don't care about 10-year data, they want 10-week data, they want 10-month data, because they just want the catheter out. Um, but then a lot of, you know, more and more younger patients are self-referring themselves, and they'll come in, you know, 60-year-old, 65-year-old, very healthy person who will very easily live 20 or 30 years more. And so, um, 
for those patients, we just have to be you know honest and say we just don't know yet. But the nice thing about the procedure is that it doesn't really burn any bridges. You can still, if it doesn't work, you can still take the medications that you would take. If it doesn't work, you can still pretty much have any uh, procedure that you would have had otherwise um, if you're a candidate for it. And in fact, sometimes uh, shrinking the gland and cutting off the blood flow makes those procedures easier and safer. The only thing that might um, be more difficult is if you had to go in and actually do a prostatectomy because having the gland all inflamed and then kind of shrinking down over time probably will make it more kind of scarred in and difficult to remove if one were to actually go in there to surgically remove it. So we tell patients in terms of um, the younger patients, at least, you know, they also ask about prostate cancer because obviously that's a very common male problem as well. And first we tell them we don't have any data to suggest how well this can work to treat prostate cancer. We tell them that um, about 80% of prostate cancers come up in the periphery of the gland, which does not typically infarct with the prostate embolization. So most likely this procedure as it's done currently will not affect their chances of getting prostate cancer. And then if they do theoretically get prostate cancer, that a, a surgical prostatectomy, if they were to uh, want to have that done, might be more challenging. So that's what we tell them in terms of, um, you know, what would happen, uh, you know, if later on down the line, if they didn't have a good result, or even if they did and got prostate cancer. So when, when FDA approval came out, did that affect your practice? Um, not really, because I think, um, I mean, it's, it was nice to say that to patients and I think it helped them kind of feel better about it, even less kind of, you know, with, with even less trepidation than they may have had. But uh, I don't think so because I think by the time that happened and in, in at least in my practice, the evolution of my practice, most urologists had already seen how good the results were. That urologists that were already referring patients saw how well it worked, and they were just they were already referring patients. And since then, there's there's just been a steady yearly increase. You know, probably another three or four urologists every year start referring patients to me, and that's just been a steady growth. Um, I think the self referrals have gone up a lot, but mostly because of marketing and advertising. So I don't know if the FDA approval really um, helped, it really influenced the growth of the practice. But I do think it's, it's, it's a, an important thing to, when you're telling urologists about the procedure, um, for them to know, and, and maybe even with insurance companies, when you're fighting with them trying to get this approved, that's when that becomes a, you know, a useful piece of ammunition. So what is your follow-up schedule for patients in clinic? Uh, so typically I'll see them one month after when um, as kind of like a post-procedure check to make sure they're doing okay and to see how their symptoms have improved. Usually, you know, like I said, most patients will have had significant improvement. Um, and then if they've done really, really well, I'll usually start kind of discontinuing their prostate medications like Flomax or Proscar then and there. Um, Sometimes if they've had a, a more like a rockier recovery with lots of inflammation, I'll see them sooner um, and just, you know, troubleshoot as needed. Uh, at, then I'll bring the patient back at the three-month mark. And by then, you usually will, we will have seen kind of the full effect and kind of get a, a real, you know, accurate kind of understanding of, of, of how much they've improved and how much they're going to improve. And... Um, but typically, most patients have improved the large majority of what they're going to get by one month. But at the three-month mark, if we haven't stopped medications, um, then that's usually when we, we do so uh, if, if, you know, 
that's clinically possible. Um, and at that point also, I will get a, a, an ultrasound of the post-void residual and a gland size measurement. I'll see them again at six months with the same kind of ultrasound evaluation. And then thereafter, I see them yearly just to kind of get the, the longer term follow-up, also with ultrasounds done. A lot, some people will, will get MRIs done, which I would love to do, but in this region, um, it's difficult to get a prostate MRI approved unless there's an actual concern for prostate cancer, which there typically is not. So you mentioned that um, you can usually see the effects of the PAE by one month or three months, uh, you'll see the full effects, and that usually the having the PAE doesn't affect the patient's ability to have other treatments for BPH, with the exception of surgical prostatectomy. Um, if a patient didn't have satisfactory improvement in their BPH symptoms with the PAE, are there ever cases where you would consider repeating PAE? Um, yes, but rarely because I try very hard to kind of annihilate all the arterial flow to the prostate as best I can. Initially, I've had one patient who had, I think probably the biggest gland I've ever worked on. It was 750 milliliters. I mean, literally it's like a grapefruit or bigger. And he was 90 something years old. He had a Foley in for years. We pretty much thought his bladder was shot, but we figured we'd give it a try because he had nothing to lose. So we embolized him. A month later, we tried to remove his catheter. It didn't work. He still couldn't empty. So I offered to bring him back just to look for any other vessels. And indeed, I found one more and I embolized that, but it never really helped him. So I think it was more just his bladder was never going to work anyway. Um, I've had one referral for a guy who had a procedure done at, a, at a, an outside institution and then has had recurrence of symptoms. So I'll probably offer him just a, a new, just another look. I'll do an angiogram to see if there's anything. But um, for the most part, um, if a patient doesn't have a good result, I think it's often because of their bladder issues. And like I said, the bladder symptoms can overlap with the prostate symptoms. And so usually they have residual just underlying bladder problems or their bladder is just not working anymore and it's not able to generate enough pressure to empty, even if we do open up the prostate somewhat. Um, I've had a, uh, maybe about six or seven patients who did well initially and then maybe about three to six months later noticed worsening of their symptoms again. And what we found is in a small number of these patients, the prostate tissue, the, the necrotic tissue will actually start to slough off and kind of fall into the urethra and cause like a ball valve effect. And so for those patients, we've had them, we've had them gone back to urologists and get what we call like a little mini turf where they just kind of go in and shave off and scoop out and clean out just the, the urethra, not a real resection. And that cleans things up and gets them back on you know track. And so, you know, so far there've been very, very few cases where I thought a repeat embolization was necessary. I suppose there's really you no, know, no reason why you couldn't try again if you felt like, they needed something and, and you were going to have a chance of helping them with it, but it's really not come up very much. You mentioned that some of your patients rely on a catheter prior to the procedure. Are there any special considerations you have for following up with these patients? So of all the cases I've done so far, about almost a third have been patients with in retention, just frank retention with indwelling catheters, and they just can't go a drop without the catheter. And so, um, so they'll come into the procedure having a catheter in. We'll do the procedure. And then we usually wait. Um, some people will wait two weeks. I'd like to wait four weeks uh, before we try to get the catheter out. So we'll let the gland, we'll get, let them through, get through the inflammation, let the gland shrink, let things open up, and then we'll uh, bring them back for avoiding trial. 
where you take the catheter out um, and have them drink lots of fluid so they make lots of urine and fill up their bladder. And then you give them, you know, a chance to try and urinate on their own. And then you, after they do what they can, you put an ultrasound on and measure what's left. And then you kind of make a judgment about how well they're emptying. So that'll usually happen uh, at the four week mark, more or less. Um, and again, out of about, of all these cases we've done, about seven out of eight patients have a good result with that. So about, you know, six out of eight will get their catheters out at that one month mark. Um, you know, two out of eight don't. And then we'll, some, for those, we'll just give it another month to see if the further shrinkage helps more. And so we'll bring them back, you know, two months after. And then of those two out of eight that didn't get their catheters out, usually one of them will, will get it out at month two. So roughly, roughly about seven out of eight will get the catheters out. Um, and then so far, uh, I've had very few patients need to have catheters replaced later on. Um, Mostly they've just kept them out and been able to urinate reasonably well afterwards. We tell patients we're not going to turn them back into 16 year olds and they're not going to urinate like they were, you know, when they, like they could when they were that age, but at least, you know, we tell them to have realistic expectations that will hopefully get the catheter out and get them back to a reasonable waiting pattern with a reasonable quality of life. Dr. Ayagar, you already mentioned to us some of the post-procedural complications that um, you want to be on the lookout for, for PAE. What are some of the things that, um, interventional radiologists should be looking for in their patients that might say that this is a complication that requires further workup as opposed to uh, expected irritation of the prostate causing symptoms? Sure. So yeah, the, the, the inflammation afterwards can be pretty significant. And also I think a lot of the severity of the symptoms lies in the patient's kind of overall mental attitude. Some are really excited to have this done and like, oh, sure, I'll, I'll take it, no problem. Some are really anxious going into it. And I think that also kind of colors their, you know, their, how they handle the symptoms afterwards. But so, yeah, it's important though, not to think of the inflammation as a complication. Um, and just so afterwards, you know, if it lasts longer than, than two weeks, those inflammatory symptoms, then that's something, you know, you have to start looking at more carefully. Um, common complications afterwards. So one, uh, urinary infections, we give uh, prophylactic antibiotics two days before the day of and a week after. And then if they have a catheter in, we'll give them two weeks of antibiotics after. Um, in those patients without catheters to begin with, the urinary tract infection rate's pretty low. It's less than 5%, I would say, uh, in our experience. And then usually it's just a matter of treating them with another course of antibiotic and it's no big deal. Um, with catheters in, the urinary tract infection rate is significantly higher, probably, uh, I'm I had to guess somewhere between 10 and 25%. I don't remember offhand, but, but they're usually prone to recurring UTIs already. And so I'm not sure how much more that, how much worse that is than just kind of, even if we didn't do the procedure. Um, beyond that, the end, the complications of the angiography are pretty rare. Um, I would say I had one patient who had a he was stage four lung cancer. He was very immunocompromised already. We knew going into it, it would be a higher risk procedure for him. We did it anyway, try and help him out. And then he got an infection afterwards, but because of all of his immunocompromised medications, or his immunocompromised state, he got a lot sicker and ended up getting urosepsis and passing away. Um, that, you know, that's one case. Uh, otherwise, I've not really had any other major complications, knock on wood. Um, that I'm aware of. The, the big thing we all worry about, and I think has happened uh, in people who, you know, have less experience with this procedure, 
uh, is non-target embolization. The beat's going somewhere where you don't want them to go. Um, particularly the penis is the, you know, obviously the, the big thing. Uh, the bladder probably can tolerate some non-target embolization just fine, as can the rectum. And in fact, we sometimes embolize those organs on purpose to stop bleeding. And so uh, I think it's possible that beads go to those organs more often than we know. And it just is never a problem because those organs have such rich blood supply. Um, whereas the penis, you know, those can be end arteries typically. And so if the beads go to the penis, that can really, you know, you can get skin necrosis, you can get a frank infarction. Um, again, luckily I've never dealt with that. Uh, I've you know, been very careful to avoid that at all costs. Um, but that's something if, if patients have skin erosions, uh, persistent skin discolorations, things like that, that's, that's, you know, there, there are definitely, uh, reports of that in the literature. Um, one thing sometimes we do notice that the, the, sometimes patients will notice that their penis actually gets a little darker, like kind of more flushed for a few days. We think that's just some kind of vasogenic kind of swelling or vasoactive issue that just kind of self-resolves. It never has been a real problem. Um, and otherwise, you know, there can be complications like vessel damage, you know, dissections, just general angiographic complications, which, you know, <clears throat> you just have to be careful in these older patients with more fragile vessels. And finally, um, medication reactions. So there's always the potential for an allergic reaction that's unforeseen. Uh, in the elderly patients, we will often, well, for this procedure, we'll often give, uh, anti-bladder spasm medications, which have anticholinergic effects. And in elderly patients or patients with Parkinson's, those can cause uh, worsening delirium. And I've had that happen uh, in one or two patients where we gave them a medication and they got kind of delirious afterwards. And then it's difficult to tease out if it's a UTI versus just delirium. But, um, but overall, it's a very, very safe procedure. And if you compare the complication rates uh, of prostatalization to any of these other more invasive procedures, it's, it definitely compares very favorably. Um, there's really, uh, at least in my experience, I've only had one patient complain of any worsening of the, of the sexual function of his erectile function, and I'm not even sure I really um, thought it was a, a real organic change. Um, a, a minority of patients, maybe up to 20%, will actually notice an improvement in their sexual function. I have one patient who hadn't had an erection in 12 years, and he called me up one day to say that it had come back. Um, so there are really very few, I mean, really no side effects to the procedure. Um, and a lot of the risks that you that come up with these other uh, transurethral procedures, there'll be, for example, with the TERPA, about a 65% chance of retrograde ejaculation. There'll be about a 10% chance of uh, penile nerve damage. Um, hematuria is very common with those, a prolonged recovery period, and lots of other surgical complications that just don't come up with, uh, with the embolization procedure. Dr. Arigari, as we've already mentioned, PAE was developed very easily, and you have been one of its pioneers. I think it would be interesting for our listeners uh, in learning from you what it takes to establish a completely new treatment, both in your personal practice and in the broader field of IR. You already mentioned that your urology experience made you well-placed to develop this procedure. So what was your approach to making PAE a major part of your practice? Uh, well, first, I don't know. You're maybe giving me too much credit. I I developed the practice in one institution. I, I haven't really been a pioneer in developing it. I mean, I didn't invent the thing myself. It was not my uh, not my genius. Um, I think, I mean, for us, it was really 
we had, you know, we embolized lots of things all the time. We uh, in particular had a really long, good track record of, of fibroid embolization and in women. And the pathology, the pathophysiology is very similar, you know, hormone induced overgrowth of benign reproductive tissue that would respond well to embolization. And so it, it kind of was, uh, you know, at least in theory, a no brainer, you know, that, that it would work. And luckily, you know, we were able to figure out how to do it safely um, and, and, and then achieve those kind of good results with it. So, um, and I think it just, you know, it's a lot of kind of uh, building relationships with referring providers and kind of already doing a good job with other things and, and, and building their trust and, and allowing you to kind of, you know, treat their patients with this new thing and, and to see how it goes. And, you know, all, and also there are lots of patients to start out with that just have no other options. And so there's, they really have nothing to lose by doing something like, you know, trying something like this. And you start out with those patients, the kind of the, the so-called low hanging fruit. And as you kind of, you know, build your, your track record and, and, and your, you know, your experience, um, then the, the, the referrals start coming in and, and the interest really, you know, just kind of builds upon itself. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us uh, more about how you got trained in doing PAE and at what point you felt you were ready to practice it on your own? I trained myself. <laughs> wow. I, I, I did not get any training in it. I just started doing it. I have been doing lots of embolization procedures in other parts of the body for you know, a few years and throughout my training. I think I started doing this after I was out of training about a year and a half or close to two years. And uh, I just felt I was at the point you know, where I was able to handle the more complicated, challenging procedures. And I, you know, just read through the papers and, and just kind of started doing it. Um, I'm not sure I would recommend that approach. Um, especially, uh, I think my experience here at Yale, just as an attending, as a junior attending those first couple of years, I got a lot of really high end complicated procedures under my belt and really felt like I, uh, this place was very unique and very special in, in allowing me to really kind of you know, grow my wings and, and really take off um, and, and feel like I was really developing my skill set. Um, I think I I got a much better procedural experience here than I, I, I could have gotten in almost any other place that I can imagine. Um, and so I think I had that kind of, was able to build that foundation and the confidence to kind of start these more complicated things um, like prostate embolization. So I just kind of felt comfortable and ready to do it. There's a, a guy named uh, Francisco Carnavale. He's one of the fathers of prostate embolization. He is down in Brazil, and he and the and the Dr. Pisco in Portugal are kind of the two main kind of you know founding fathers of this procedure. And earlier on, um, lots of physicians would uh, go down on trips uh, to Portugal. I'm sorry, to Brazil to see Dr. Carnavale perform these, and he would kind of train them. Um, I uh, did not have that opportunity to do that. And so I just kind of started doing it on my own. And, and, and luckily, I was able to kind of, uh, you know, navigate my way through it and, and, and do a good job. Wow. So it's really jumping, uh, jumping into the deep end. Yeah. <laughs> For interventional radiologists who want some training in PAE and maybe can't make it down to Brazil, any other suggestions uh, you have for them? Yeah, there are a couple of uh, courses out there. Uh, I was involved in the course taught by Merit Medical, which is the company that makes the beads that we typically use for embolization. Um, 
a doctor named Shivank Bhatia, who is probably the, the, the national, if not the emerging world leader in the procedure. Uh, he's in University of Miami. He's the main instructor for that course these days. And um, that happens like once every two months. It's a day and a half course. Um, there's another course uh, taught by uh, an interventional radiologist named uh, Sandeep Bagla in uh, usually hold it in, in, in Washington, D.C., I believe. They've had that twice, um, and that's a one-day course. I mean, obviously, you know, these kind of courses, you go through lots of presentations, see lots of cases, lots of pictures, and then they may have some, you know, uh, some simulator uh, devices to try to, you know, work on. But, you know, th- those are often obviously a far cry from the real patients you see and work on. So um, I think more than anything, just being a skilled interventional radiologist and having developed, you know, depth and breadth of experience in in angiography and embolization and and knowing, you know, all the vascular anatomy and the variants, that's probably the main thing. So I think a lot of experience. And then obviously you have to learn all the urology that goes along with uh, being able to evaluate these patients before and after you do their procedures. And that I think just comes with, um, I don't know, I guess I kind of luck, luckily had a good amount of that just from my, you know, brief, you know, partial urology training. Um, I guess that can be gleaned from, you know, reading papers and books and uh, but a lot of that also I think just comes with experience. And what were some of the challenges you faced when you first started uh, performing this procedure independently. Um, you touched on how this is a very complicated procedure. And, and how did you explain to patients um, that this was a brand new procedure at the time or very uh, new and the outcomes weren't as long-term um, and didn't have as many uh, patients in trials as some of the other procedures? Um, yeah. So the, well, to answer the last question first, the, um, again, when we started with the, the patients we started with were usually patients that had no other options. They had exhausted all their options. They were miserable. And, you know, and so this was kind of like their last resort. And so it wasn't really a tough sell and, and, and being able to explain to them or to, to convince them of your overall level of confidence in, in doing these procedures in general, obviously was, was you know, important. Um, but it was, it's, it was a pretty easy sell because these, like I said, these patients had nothing else uh, to go for. And it seemed like a good idea, you know, and, and, and luckily for most of them, it was a good idea. Everything worked out pretty well for them. Um, I mean, going into it again, technically it's just, you know, requires just, you know, the experience and the skill that one gets from doing angiography over the years. And it was um, uh, difficult to really, um, to really get down the pelvic arterial anatomy. I think for the first, I don't know, 30 to 50 cases, I would, feel the need to kind of do a cone beam CT to map everything out. Um, and as I got into my like second 50, I kind of started, you know, it's almost like the matrix you can kind of, before you're just seeing numbers, but suddenly you can kind of start seeing what's there and understanding it. And now by like kind of, you know, now when I do these cases, I very seldomly have any doubt. I, I see the image and within a second or two, I know exactly where I want to go. So there's definitely a lot of kind of, like learning to take the training wheels off and start using the force, you know, a little bit. Um, but, um, but definitely in the beginning, it, it would, it would take a lot of effort to kind of map things out and understand where I needed to go. And, and that just improves with experience. I think. What was your strategy to increase patient interest and referrals for a PAE when it was less well-known than it is now? Well, I think it just kind of 
speaks for itself. It kind of sells itself. You, I mean, a urologist would refer a patient, um, and we'd do the procedure, the first patient, and you know, we would do this procedure, and it would go well, and that the urologist would then see how well that patient did, and then they'd say, oh, well, I got this other guy. Let's see how it works for him. And they send a second patient. It's almost like a gateway drug. As soon as they send the second and third patients, they just suddenly, you know, the, I mean, to, you know, try not to use a pun here, but like the, you know, the, the, it just becomes a steady flow, steady stream of patients. They just start coming and they start referring them because they see how well it works and how um, well it's tolerated and how few side effects or risks and complications there are. And, um, and then you start, you know, then another urologist sees, you know, that patient and they say, oh, that guy had a great result. Oh, I got this other guy. And it just kind of feeds on itself. And then I've definitely had patients refer friends, um, if not to me, to the urologist asking for this procedure. And then the urologist would be kind of compelled to look into it. Um, I had one patient who was a father of a nurse that I worked with. And he had a great result. So he went and told his primary care doctor about it. His primary care doctor had BPH problems. So he came, he referred himself, and then he had a great result. So that he started referring lots of his patients. So it just kind of builds and builds and builds. Um, and then um, at some point, um, I started taking a big active, making an active effort to market things. And so we contacted the, the local newspaper, the New Haven Register, and um, they came and did a, a nice piece on the procedure. And to my great surprise, they put it right on the front page of the newspaper. Um, and I didn't I ever really think the newspaper, that newspaper was, you know, had a lot of kind of traction um, for medical kind of practice. But turns out, you know, 60, 70, 80 year old men, they read the newspaper, they're not online. And so we got a lot of it within, you know, two days of that, paper being published, uh, there were about 20 or some new referrals, um, that really kind of, and then what happens is new urologists send patients. And again, like once you get a urologist sends one or two patients and they get good results, they start sending more and more. It just feeds on itself. So that's been kind of the pattern. And then, um, and then about, I guess now almost three years ago, I sent out a letter to all the urologists in Connecticut explaining kind of, you know, how it works and how it goes and what to expect. And, and another couple of urologists send patients and it's just kind of the same pattern you see over and over. You're all just find out about it somehow they'll send one or two patients and then it just goes from there. So, um, and so as a result now in, in within Southern Connecticut, we have about probably about 25 to 30 urologists who refer patients. Um, some refer a couple here and there. Uh, one group of uh, two or three urologists has sent almost 50 referrals Um Within Yale, there are two or three urologists that have sent, uh, you know, dozens, and then several others that have sent a few or four or five. Um, and then we started um, advertising with Google Ads and with Facebook, uh, you know, using social media uh, about a year ago or more. And now we get lots of, you know, patients interested kind of self-referrals from Massachusetts, from New Jersey, New York. I've had a couple of patients from Russia. I get somehow patients contacting me from the West coast. Um, and so, yeah, it doesn't really take a whole lot to kind of start doing the marketing. And, and I also, you know, just put up my own website about it. Um, so that's just usually more like a reference to send patients to once they've kind of started looking into it, but, but that's how we've done it. Wow. So it's a very multidisciplinary way to, to reach patients. It seems. 
Yeah. Um, and it sounds like collaborating with urologists and PCPs and other physicians was really key to PAE becoming a widely practiced procedure so quickly. Yeah, oh, I, I wouldn't say it's widely. Widely, if you're talking about Southern Connecticut. <laughs> um, yeah, no, urologists are, I mean, it's critical. You can't, um, you're not competing. You can't compete with them. You have to work with them. And um, I am very, very careful about making sure it's never a competition, making sure that patients come to me. I'm just there to inform them about all their options as I see them and and then to make sure they see all the other appropriate specialists to get all the options that, you know, and, and then for them to make an informed decision about what they want to do. Um, and uh, so I will make sure if a patient comes to see me first that they see a urologist afterwards and, you know, subsequent to me. Um, and in doing that, you know, I, I, I get lots of, especially the self-referral patients who really don't have prostate problems or not something that's amenable to embolization. And I refer them to a urologist and that's, that's more business for the urologist. And so, um, it's kind of a, in some ways, a mutually beneficial relationship lots of times. And again, a lot of these patients are, are urologist patients who they have no other, you know, treatment to offer them. They're kind of, you know, at the end of their their options. And so you're helping the urologist by, you know, giving them some new tool to treat patients that they otherwise weren't really able to help anymore. So, um, and, you know, and, and, and then once we reached out to primary care providers as well, it's also important to not take the urologist out of the loop. That's, I think, a very counterproductive thing to do, both medically speaking and also, you know, politically speaking. Um, and ethically. So, you know, like I said, I always make sure if a patient sees a urologist after me if they haven't seen one before me. So with all that hard work and effort, about how many PAEs have you performed in total so far? Uh, about 150 now. Um, the, first, the first year we did, you know, one. The second year we did four. The third year we did about 12. Uh, then the fourth year we did, you know, I don't know how many dozens. And then the, the past 12 months I've done about 75 or 80 um so it just kind of every year they basically double um and now these days I see I do about three a week but I'm seeing about five new patients a week and so the referrals kind of continue to uh increase and so we're getting to the point where we we're I've just kind of eliminated other things from my practice and this is about almost all I do anymore um it's really kind of eclipsing the rest of the work I do, but yeah, it's about 150, but I think that, that number will, that the, the number per year now will, will continue to grow. I think we'll probably do maybe a hundred this in the next 12 months and, and continue beyond there. Hopefully. Of those 150, is there a particular success story that stands out to you and you'd like to share? No, oh, there's a, a many, I think um, there's one patient who his grandchildren lived somewhere in Virginia or, or lower farther South. And he could never visit them because there weren't enough uh, bathrooms along the way on the, on the highway on I-95 for him to stop at to urinate because he had to go so frequently. Um, and he, you know, he didn't really have the, the, the means to fly, but he said even once when he did, you know, having to sit in the plane and not be able to get up because of, you know, turbulence or whatever, landing and takeoff, he just couldn't fly. And, and, and also the time of, you know, in the security lines and all that, he just, he couldn't travel. He could not. He could not drive far. He could not fly far, and he wasn't able to see his grandchildren. And after we did his procedure, um, you know, he 
really turned his life around. He was able to kind of have a pretty normal um, urination pattern again. And so he was able to do all these things that he was never able to do before. Um, you know, it was really a life changer for him. We've had patients who uh, come in with severe life-threatening bleeding. You can actually, the prostate, when it gets very big, can have a, a very um, robust blood flow to it and then and it can bleed easily and then quite briskly. And so we've had patients who um, came in bleeding to death and we embolized them and the bleeding stopped. They got, you know, better within a day or two. And then afterwards, again, um, you know, their, their symptoms, their BPH symptoms got better. So they didn't even know or expect that to happen. And so a month or two or three later, they're suddenly urinating much better. And so um, what's nice about it is I would say the large majority of the cases we do are stories like that where they're just, you know, really good outcomes. So it's, it's a nice thing. It's probably the only thing in medicine I've seen in my years that is such a kind of crisp, clean, profound improvement in someone's life where you just fix a problem and it's just, it's just fixed. It's not like, you know, cancer, lots of times we treat it as best we can and we, you know, give the patient as much quality and quality of life as we can. But in the end it's palliation. Um, there, there, I think very, or things that you kind of, treat like high blood pressure and you get it under control, but you never get rid of it. Lots of these patients, you do this procedure and you just get rid of the problem and it's fixed and done and it's gone and they're, you know, much happier for it. So it's, it's, there are really a lot of success stories with this. Dr. Ayagari, you mentioned that um, some patients come, come in with brisk prostate bleeding and that's the reason why they would undergo prostate embolization. Yeah. How different would the procedure be if you were treating somebody for a prostate bleed versus for a BPH? Um, not at all. It's the same procedure. I, they've, I've only, I think maybe had one patient who had life threatening bleeding and was unstable and we had to go very quickly, uh, as if it were like a trauma situation, but usually they're, they're, they're stable. They're not, you know, bleeding to death in front of you, but they are requiring daily transfusions. And so you really have the same, you know, the same luxury of time you normally have when doing the procedure. And so it's really no different. Okay. Um, and then, as our listeners know, IR is a very innovative field with almost constant development of new procedures and treatment modalities like PAE. What general advice would you have for an interventional radiologist who wants to pioneer a very new procedure like you have for PAE? Oh, I guess it's mostly just luck. I don't know. I don't think I, <laughs> I don't think I really was able to pick something that was new and say okay and and and, and know it was going to be this great thing and it was going to take off. I think. Um, it was a very serendipitous thing. We were very lucky to have this this new thing come up that really had a great chance of, of working. Um, so it's there's not a, I don't think there there are a lot of opportunities out there, you know, in, in interventional radiology, you know, for for new things to kind of be developed and to take off like this. They're they're pretty rare. Um, one thing that comes to mind that's coming up is um, you know these or the the technology is there for us to do percutaneous uh, uh, arterial venous fistula formation for dialysis access. Um, so, you know, there are things like that uh, that come, you know, lots of times they come and go. Um, every once in a while they stick. And so, um, you know, I guess it's just a, you got to have kind of the energy to, to go out and kind of learn about what you want to do and be an expert in the disease process that you wish to treat and then really you know, take the energy to, to go out and talk it up and, 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 you know, kind of publicize things with your would-be referring providers and then, you know, be willing to kind of 
take on the, the really tough cases and, um, you know, stay late, come in on your days off, whatever you need to do to kind of get things going. Um, and then hope it, 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 it pans out, you know, try your best to do a good job at it and hope that it, it ends up kind of, you know, validating itself and being a, you know, a useful thing to do. One last question, Dr. Arigari. If uh, a medical student was with you and about to come into CA prosthetic artery embolization for the first time, what were some things that you wanted to make sure that uh, the student knew before the procedure started? I guess it's nice to know, you know, to understand why we're doing it, but also I think it's it's very neat to to understand the other treatment options and and how invasive they are, and then so that when someone goes in to see this procedure, they see how relatively quick and easy and just absolutely minimally invasive it is and how the patients typically will just be watching it on the screen if they want and walk out that same day without any, you know, real problems, you know, with just a tiny little Band-Aid on. I think that's a very powerful thing for this procedure in particular, uh, but also for interventional radiology in general. You know, like, for example, a lot of the liver uh, cancer treatments we do, uh, in particular percutaneous ablations, also for renal tumors, I mean, a, a patient comes in, you give them sedation, you stick this needle, a special, you know, ablation probe needle into their liver through a t- tiny little skin nick. You burn the tumor for 10 minutes, you pull it out, you wash them for two hours, you send them home with a Band-Aid. And that kind of technology, and if you, if you do a good job, they have the same 10-year survival and disease-free uh, rates as a surgical procedure when they go in and resect something, which is obviously much more invasive. Um, just to, to know that we have that kind of technology and very powerful technologies to do these kind of procedures and send patients home the same day. Um, that's, that's, I think, one of the best things about IR. And it's nice to know for students getting exposed to it, what the other options are and what, how things would otherwise, you know, turn out, how things would otherwise turn out for a patient if they had a surgical procedure done. Dr. Agari, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your valuable knowledge and experience. This was a really fascinating topic and I think really reflects the innovation that is behind interventional radiology. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. That's it for this episode. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. If you're a practicing interventional radiologist who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time.